Hey everyone, a quick request before we get started with today's show. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the show. Reviews are the single best thing you can do to support, so to speak. And if you want to go the extra mile, consider sharing the show on social media or with a friend. Myself and the whole, so to speak, team would be immensely grateful. Thank you. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I'm your host, Nico Perino. In 2018, my boss, Greg Lukianoff, and his co-author, Jonathan Haidt, wrote in their best-selling book, The Coddling American Mind, that a school that makes freedom of inquiry an essential part of its identity, selects students who show special promise as seekers of truth, orients and prepares those students for productive disagreement, that would be an inspiring university to join, a joy to attend, and a blessing to society. Well, our guest on today's show is answering that call not by reforming an existing university, but rather by starting his own. Pano Canelos is a founder of the recently announced University of Austin, and he and his co-founders are rethinking the modern university by building their vision upon a foundation of open inquiry, new financial models, and an innovative curriculum. And it seeks to slowly roll out its programming over the course of the coming years, culminating with an undergraduate college in 2024. If ever there was a man to help lead such a daunting effort, it is Pano. He is the former president of St. John's College, a worldwide leader in curricular innovation, where during his tenure, he oversaw the most significant tuition reduction of any American college and paired it with a 30 or 300, excuse me, million dollar campaign fundraising chops that we will need here for the University of Austin. Get off the ground. Pano, welcome onto the show and congratulations. Well, thank you so much, Nico. It's such a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to talk about this, especially the, the quote that you started with that Greg and Jonathan um, had from their book was one of the uh, points of inspiration for this very university. So thrilled to be talking with you about it. Well, let's start there. I mean, this is a daunting task, right? A lot of the universities that we look up to in America have been around for hundreds of years. They've got billions of dollars and endowment money. Um, what what makes you think you guys can pull this off, and why did you want to pull it off? Hmm. Well, first of all, I'd say um, all of those universities that have been around for hundreds of years and ha- with their billions of dollars started at some point in time. They, there was a call uh, that somebody heard to start those institutions. And in many ways, the United States is the birthplace of colleges and universities. We have thousands of institutions here that have all uh, emerged in different places in the country at different times um, to meet different sorts of urgencies, uh, different moments, whether it was, you know, educating, you know, in the Northeast, educating the the early ministers of 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 the colonies, or whether it was as the country was expanding, the need to provide education to people who were um, uh, in places where the country is growing, land-grant universities, research universities, we've had faith-based universities, places that are absolutely committed to uh, technology and science. I mean, this is the heterogeneity of uh, higher education 
in in the United States is one of the glories of our culture. So but but, but would is, you say, uh, Pano, that would you say though that that innovation has started to fade? At least I'm 31 years old. I don't hear of new universities being founded very often anymore. Is that because they've become so bureaucratized, or they've become these little city-state fiefdoms that it's hard to replicate in an innovative way? I, I mean, it is it is very difficult to start an institution uh, of higher learning today. I mean, there are issues around accreditation. Um, the uh, the money that you need to launch, the funding you need to get started, the fact that there are so many institutions doing so many things, you have to be very convicted about the the space that you want to occupy in higher education. Um, so there there are a lot of barriers, um, but you know this is a, a there are opportunities that come with those things as well. You know one of the one of the great joys of starting a new institution is you can really set aside all legacy practices and begin from scratch and, and retain the things that you think have worked well at institutions and innovate where you need to. And so it's just a joy. Yeah. When I was sort of thinking through this interview and I was thinking about all those legacy practices, and if you look at the number of, of administrators who have entered the ranks at any given college, it's just ballooned and with them comes new policies or new additions to the student or faculty handbook. And it's just layer upon layer of new bureaucracy. And I, I think back, I was like, oh, it must be so refreshing to start something new. You don't have any of that. You could eliminate as much of it as you want. And you, you get into those years of your development. You've been around. So it's like, uh, what, who was it, Justinian during the Roman Empire who said the the law in the Roman Empire had become so bureaucratic that he just needed to start f from new. And I think it was the Justinian Code, but our ancient history scholars will correct me there. But, you know, what's the, what's the individual challenge that you guys are, you know, what's the call that you're seeking to answer here? Is it a new model that rethinks the university completely, or is there a particular niche that you are seeking to fill that doesn't exist elsewhere in the country? Um, uh, happy to answer that. Before I get to that, I want to say now that you planted in my, uh, my mind, the image of Justinian, uh, you made this seem even more daunting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, look, the, uh, let me tell you a little bit about where this started, where the project started and, and why we feel like there's a deep urgency for a new university of the sort that we're uh, launching. Look, American universities, uh, the quality of American universities is um, exceptional. Um, they've been phenomenally successful. Uh, at educating generation after generation of students, both American students, students who come from across the world here to to seek uh, education, um, they're they're wonderful places. Or, um, but something lately has changed tonally at institutions of higher learning. When you start to see the places where society does its thinking um, turn in on themselves and um, become places where people are silenced, where students don't feel like they can speak openly and freely, where faculty um, keep, uh, keep to themselves if they have any kind of dissenting opinions. Um, at the very place in society where we should be most bold in our thinking, most open in discussion, and uh, most amenable to hearing opinions different from our own, um, when when that's no longer 
what we find at many or most institutions, we have a problem. We have a, a serious problem. Um, I'm utterly convinced that the polarization that we have in our society today, broadly construed, um, has its roots in the culture of universities over the past couple decades. Um, and so there are a group of us who have been talking about these issues for quite a while. And we became, um, at first, you know, we, we were concerned with finding ways to reform institutions from within, became sort of uh, focused on that. And then it became evident that that's probably not the right way to proceed. And so we had to ask ourselves a question. Are we simply going to allow uh, higher education to continue down a path that's harmful both for higher education and for society? Or are we going to try and you know, create a new model? Or maybe not even a new model. That's not the right way. Try and renew the model of higher education in a way that circles back around to open inquiry and civil discourse as the kind of foundational principles. Um, so that's what we decided to do, and that you know, inspired by people like Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff and others who have been advocating for this very thing. We thought, what if you start there? What if you start not with uh, a piece of land, not with a faculty, not with a billion dollars? What if you start with principles? And you say, how do you begin an institution that's going to be utterly committed to open inquiry and utterly committed to civil discourse and build out from there? And so you start solving for those problems. And so you have the academic questions that arise around that, the questions of the, the financial model of the institution, uh, the cultural questions and that. And so with that as a starting point, we've been constructing a new university. And do you have any ideas regarding the infrastructure you're going to put in place to ensure that those principles get upheld? I think that it's often the case where people have these lofty ideas or lofty goals for themselves or their institutions. Politicians have it all the time, right? They're elected on a platform that they don't deliver on. Uh, Google's initial model was do no evil or something along those lines. You know, it was going to be the company that did things differently uh, in the tech world. And now it is the tech world and it's doing a lot of the evil things that its founders promised not to do. So what, what's the infrastructure that you in, anticipate building internally to ensure that it doesn't go off the rails? You were a president of a university, right? I often feel bad for you guys because you have people like us, FIRE, we're a watchdog, who have a, have a, a, a value, have a purpose, and pressure from one side. But you're getting that pressure from a lot of sides when you're a president of a university, from students, from faculty, from administrators, all with different values and different concerns, and all of whom... <laughs> Why are we think this, of course, think their concern is the most important concern and that anything less than total obedience to that concern is an abdication of duty. So how do you ensure that those different pressures don't deviate you from the goal that you set out here? It sounds like your, your market niche is going to be free and open inquiry. So how do we keep that? This is an infelicitous um, analogy, but it's the one I'm going to use right now. It comes to mind. Um, if you're building an airport and you're doing that before 9-11, you build one kind of airport. Um, if you're building an airport after 9-11, that is after you've identified what the threats are, you build a different kind of airport. The threats to um, freedom of thought, conscience, um, 
freedom of speech uh, that have arisen in higher education over the past couple of decades kind of creeped up on us, to be honest. I don't think this was anybody's long-term plan, at least not anybody I know about. Well, I mean, you were, you've been in higher ed for a long time. Is this stuff you were thinking about 20 years ago? Not really. I mean, not, I mean, I mean, in retrospect, I see the, the in, you know, where the inklings of all this came yeah. from. But at the time, I mean, when I started college, I was in college from 87 to 91, my undergraduate years. You know, I was a first generation college kid. I came from a uh, Greek family. My dad was an immigrant. My mom was the child of immigrants. And I didn't really know what to expect when I got to college. Um, it was a kind of wonderland. You know, I showed up. I, I went to Northwestern University. I met people from all walks of life, from so many different backgrounds, so many ideas that I had never even considered before. Or suddenly, did, you gr- did you grow up in the Chicago area? Partially in Chicago and then partially in Arizona. Okay. Yeah. I grew, I grew up in Elmhurst, which is a Western oh, suburb. Well, yeah. And uh, so I got, to, I got there and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that I was exposed to things that were just so out of my frame of reference. You know, I, I remember friends of mine who were just committed feminists and other people who were, you know, everything from Marxist to like neo-monarchist. I mean, every, the whole spectrum. And it was just amazing to be part of that, um, that, that part of an institution at that time where everybody would bounce ideas off each other, share them. I mean, we argued, but, you know, we argued and then, you know, we would slap each other on the back and go have a beer or something afterwards. And you mean you wouldn't go to an administrator to help mediate? Never crossed my mind, and then, and so I mean, maybe this sounds like a golden age, and maybe 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 I'm uh, remembering it as I, I wish it was. But I, I think it's I, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that when I was in college, you know, uh, thirty years ago, um, that it felt like a place that you went not to um, persuade other people that you already had fixed upon ideas, but you were there to discover. Um, ideas and be exposed to ideas. And it, it just seemed to me that that was the whole purpose of being there. Yet over the three decades I've been in higher education, um, I've seen that, uh, you know, that those opportunities slip away. I've seen movement in the opposite direction rather than have speech that is uh, open and free flowing, liberated. You see people, you know, um, feeling like they can't speak to one another, or if they are speaking to one another, feeling self-conscious about the consequences of that speech. And there's a culture of fear. I mean, it, it, there just is. And that that's not acceptable. Just not acceptable that, that anybody in higher education feels like um, that, that, that they have to um, look over their shoulder. Um, just, I, I, you know, I find that uh, just completely untenable. Well, you're, you're expressing a concern about the culture of higher education that, of course, is shared by us within fire, but the detractors argue that the cases that we're talking about are anecdotal and that colleges, college campuses, there's really not as much fear as uh, perhaps we at fire make there out to be. Um, but I think that belies the fact that there there is a chilling effect that any one case can cast across an entire campus, right? That you, we don't see the cases of people who don't speak out. Um, and we've tried to get at this problem by surveying students, and some of those results real, reveal some sub- troubling trends. But you, it's hard to actually survey faculty on these issues. There's no panel out there from YouGov or Harris 
who will give you a panel of faculty members and tell you how they're feeling about their teaching. But you've been the president of a university. You've been in higher education for decades now. You know, it, it, do faculty come to you and say they self-censor in increasing regularity? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, faculty, students, even staff. Um, you know, I've, I've been very outspoken about the need for, for, for open inquiry and civil discourse, even when I was at St. John's. And so I think that encouraged a lot of people to, um, to have these conversations with me, even though I was a, a, an administrator. And um, yeah, I mean, it, um, I mean do, like dozens of, of people uh, have approached me. And again, it's it's the people who aren't saying things, I think, that um, I'm even more concerned about. I mean, you know, it's just, they, I mean, I, you know, the work that you guys have done at FIRE and others done with your surveys and, and canvassing, you know, um, the, the culture and, and higher education, I think, is invaluable. I mean, it's the data is there. The data is simply there that um, a significant portion of students feel that they have to self-censor. Significant portion of faculty um, feel that they have to watch their back. And again, I just I find that at, at universities, I mean, at places that are supposed to be, you know, the kind of beating heart of a free society that should be the most tolerant, the most heterogeneous places we can imagine the place where you can try out ideas without fear of consequences. It's, there should be a place in society where we can be wrong and be wrong publicly with each other. And, and if we don't have that space, how are we ever going to find out what is right? So you were president of St. John's College, which in retrospect, you know, being the person who I am now, I would have loved to have attended, but you know, I had to pick the college that I went to when I was still 18 years old and in a heavy metal band and college was, the, the educational purpose of college was maybe secondary to my considerations about social life and running track, which I also did in college. Are you, can you tell our listeners a little bit about St. John's and why it's different? And if there's anything from St. John's that you want to bring over to the University of Austin? Yeah, sure. Um, so St. John's is, I think it's, it's an institution that still does retain, um, for the most part, a culture of um, dialogue, discussion, debate, openness. Um, and the reason it's able to do that is that it has a very particular kind of curriculum. Um, the curriculum of St. John's provides a common intellectual experience for students. So there are no majors. Uh, you have a four-year-long liberal arts curriculum where you essentially follow about 200 uh, great books uh, loosely chronologically um, from the ancient world to the modern world across all subjects, philosophy, literature, mathematics, uh, read books in the science, music, and, and everything is really discussion-based in terms of the experience. Um, and what this is essentially provides for students is uh, um, a foundation in asking the most important human questions and then thinking about how those questions have been answered over time looking at some of the most compelling answers and then trying to come up with our own. So, you know, at the heart of it, the questions that we all should be thinking about as human beings, you know, what is human nature? What is justice? What is beauty? Um, these aren't new questions. They've been asked for a very long time. And so by triangulating, by having students um, together go through texts that are generally very difficult, very challenging, and trying to parse out 
what that text or that author was trying to say on these important subjects, that kind of mutual intellectual work creates a culture of, um, of, of trust. Because uh, you're because you realize you all, none of you really have the best answer at hand. Nobody in the room does. So you're kind of trying to find a, a, an answer that's a little bit better than the one you started with. And you're doing that together. And to me, that's that's the model for civil discourse, right? Civil discourse we often think of as um, I have my opinion and you have your opinion, and we're going to talk to each other or at each other for a while. And if we don't strangle each other, it's civil discourse. <laughs> that's it. Um, but that's not what civil discourse is. Civil discourse is um, is the foundation of a free and democratic society. It's people coming together and having conversation um, so that we can create a civil culture that is oriented towards finding the best answers to the most important questions. So it's about adding one plus one doesn't equal two in civil discourse. It, it, it equals a thousand. You have this kind of exponential effect um, when you speak constructively with each other and listen to one another. That's civil discourse. It has, a, it, it has a, an important constructive component to it. So what's the curriculum going to look like at University of Austin? Are you working on that currently? And, and what sort of faculty do you envision hiring? And have you hired any faculty already? So the curriculum, um, so in many ways, I want to preserve um, uh, some of the elements of a St. John's education, along with, I did my PhD at University of Chicago. I have deep respect for the Chicago tradition, places like Columbia and their their core programs. Um, so the first couple of years in the undergraduate program are going to be uh, built along this common intellectual experience model. Um, we're going to divide our courses into uh, three broad areas, humanities, social sciences, and, and natural sciences. And we're going to pose these questions explicitly, the human questions um, in each of our courses, and then try to come to answers uh, together. So, you know, for example, if you're thinking about the question of human nature, reading the Iliad gives you a certain perspective. Uh, thinking about human biology and reproduction gives you a different perspective. Um, so allowing those questions to kind of cross-pollinate. And we are going to use, you know, let's call them the great books, um, or I, I prefer just call them great books because I don't think you can really delimit them. We're going to use great books uh, that have um, provided compelling answers to these questions over time. Uh, so that's going to be the first two years. And then after that, uh, undergraduates are going to become junior fellows. And um, we're going to set up a kind of, constellation of research centers, institutes, think tanks, where the great questions are looked at in, in a particular disciplinary context. So we're going to have a center on education and public service, a center on entrepreneurship and leadership, a center on politics and applied history. And so um, rather than have a major, students will become fellows in these centers and they will do, be doing research. They'll have internships, apprenticeships, they're going to be doing a kind of mentored experience. They're going to be doing their own kind of bespoke pathway um, through these institutes as they prepare to graduate. So there's sort of two very different pieces here, the kind of traditional liberal arts model that you would find at a place like St. John's, and then a kind of innovative model that's really about self-directed education that forms the latter part of the experience. And you're still looking to launch in 2024? That's what I said at the top, but yeah, that seems ambitious. Oh, we're, we're, we're even more ambitious than that. We're actually hoping 
planning, I should say, to launch our first master's program in entrepreneurship and leadership uh, next fall, fall of 22, a one-year program. Uh, we're going to launch a couple more master's programs the following year. And then our undergraduate program hopefully will launch in 24, 25. Um, that's the most complicated piece to put together over time. So we need a little bit of time to do that. And it's the University of Austin. Why Austin, Texas? Is there going to be an actual shovel in the ground here uh, at some point, you hope? Absolutely. We believe very strongly in in-person education and in creating a community of learning. Um, Locke called it the commonwealth of learning, you know, and those the places across the world where people gather together to seek truth. And uh, so we, we're going to have a, a campus, physical location. Um, and why Austin? Um, Austin really, you know, this, this institution is an entrepreneurial enterprise. It's, it's something new being introduced in the world and kind of with strong elements of innovation. That's the spirit of Austin right now. People are coming here from all over the country, all over the world to start new things. Um, and it's not just tech. I mean, tech is a, um, one of the most significant areas um, of entrepreneurship and innovation here. But I've met amazing K through 12 educators here that are starting projects left and right. These new schools popping up and new ways of thinking about K through 12 education. Um, there's a lot of energy here in Austin and a lot of people coming together to share ideas. And that's exactly what we want to do at this institution. We want to bring people together uh, from across the country and world to share their ideas. So the spirit of this place at this time really uh, feeds into the kind of institution that we want to become. And I imagine you'll be bringing some very interesting faculty in as well. Are you able to share who you have involved yet, or do you have any idea of the type of person that you'd like to have involved in the faculty? So at this point, um, we have we have already brought on three of what we're calling founding faculty fellows. So these are um, faculty who will uh, teach for us as we get going, help us design curriculum, uh, help us think about the important questions that you mentioned earlier, like how do we preserve the mission of the institution over time? Um, and we began thinking about, you know, who's, who will represent the, the kind of ethos of the place? And so our first fellows um, include Peter Bogosian, who recently left Portland State, philosopher, uh, Ayan Hersiali, great um, uh, public intellectual feminist. Um, Isn't she at Harvard? Uh, she has an affiliation with Hoover in Stanford. Oh, okay. Uh, Hoover Institute. Uh, and then uh, our third fellow who we just uh, brought on board is Kathleen Stock from the University of Sussex. Uh, a feminist. I'm not familiar with her. I am with the other two. She's a feminist author who um, wrote a book about uh, transgender, uh, um, transgenderism. And oh, that's the third rail if ever there was one. Watch well, she out. Was, she was hounded out of her institution by um, protests, students, threats, um, as was Peter Bogosian over a longer period of time. And yeah. decided that we would start by hiring people, not only because they um, were bright people who knew a lot of things about important subjects, but people who exemplified a spirit of courage, people who can, in many ways, be a trailblazer to show us how we can move past this period um, where, where ideas are being suppressed and, and people are paying a penalty for being dissidents and, and move to a better place. So we, I, we wanted to bring the very people on board who have the most 
immediate experience of this so they can teach us uh, how to be a better institution. Well, that's one way to preserve the mission, right? Is to is to hire people who were committed to their vision of a university in the most difficult of circumstances, you know, and were willing to leave their university uh, because it, it didn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And another way to preserve the mission is you have to be very clear about what the mission is. I mean, what yeah. is that you're offering the world? And so, you know, for us, we are inspired by things like the Chicago Statement on Academic Freedom. Uh, we're going to be holding our own uh, conference in the spring and we're going to create the Austin Statement on Academic Freedom inspired by Chicago. But we feel that we should um, articulate our own principles. Um, but the two, like I said, two foundational principles for us that are non-negotiable our um, open inquiry and civil discourse. And so bringing members of our community on who abide by those principles is priority one. Right? You could come, you could believe anything you want to believe. You could be a, you know, you know, a radical Marxist. You could be a, a, a super committed person of faith. You could, you know, I don't care about your politics. Uh, um, I don't care about the kind of things that, that, um, uh, that stimulate you intellectually. What I care about primarily are people who um, understand the value of conversation and dialogue and are going to create an environment where dialogue can thrive. So this won't be primarily a research university then? There's going to be a significant amount of research. We want to give people the ability to do their work. Um, and so we're going to be bringing scholars in and we're going to give them space to do their work. And it's a place where they don't have to look over their shoulder, but they're going to have to teach as well. So it's going to be really a kind of a teacher-scholar model um, for the faculty at the, at the university. What, what I have to ask, what about tenure? Have you thought about that? You know, it's interesting. Um, yeah, of course we think about it. And, you know, one of the great ironies is that the purpose of tenure was to preserve academic freedom. And, uh, and now the system of tenure is, I think, one of the things that's restricting academic freedom. And let me just say a little bit about that because it might yeah, sound I was gonna ask. intuitive. It's not so much that somebody gets a job for life and they're sort of guaranteed that piece of tenure, I think, that has led to restrictions in academic freedom. It's the way that those people are hired and then uh, evaluated over time. So essentially, faculty hire their peers, evaluate those peers, and ultimately decide whether the, that the candidate for tenure is going to get a permanent position at the institution. I mean, there's, it has to be run up through the administrative um, you know, regime, but it's you know, 99% of the work is done at the faculty level. And um, over time, what's happened is you know, like hires like. And I don't think this has been in a kind of insidious or anybody's had an agenda or anything. I just think there's been a natural gravitation towards hiring people who, um, you know, faculty are comfortable with, whose, whose opinions align loosely with their own. And so over time, you know, this, statistics bear this out. You know, we've gone from institutions that were, you know, a couple decades ago, minority conservative, you know, maybe, you know, 10, 20 percent of a department might be conservative, but there was a presence to institutions where, you know, if it's 1%, um, yeah, you know, that's, that's probably par for the course. And that kind of, you know, that kind of iteration over time in that direction, I think has been really harmful. And what, where, where the academic freedom piece is, is problematic is if you're only hiring people who are roughly going to agree with your perspective um, and students who are in graduate school know that, 
the students who have different perspectives now are not going into PhD programs because they understand that they're not going to be hired at the end of it. So there's a kind of triple filtration process. You have students selecting, you know, to go to graduate school, they learn there that they the, the sorts of things they need to focus on, the kind of opinions that they need to make public are pretty narrow. They go through graduate school, they get their first job, they have to spend about six years in the tenure clock with that same mindset, you know, they have to kind of continue to toe the line, do things that are um, in accord with, you know, their the expectations of their colleagues, and then they get tenured. And then by the time they're tenured, there aren't very many people who are going to have dissenting opinions left. So even at that point where they might be able to express those opinions because they have academic freedom, they have this thing called tenure, there just aren't that many people who are, are able to take advantage of the, the kind of full weight of that academic freedom. So to you, it's not so much that tenure is the problem. It's just the pipeline that is created that leads to tenure, Yeah, you know, ends up filtering out the people who might produce the sort of institutional disconfirmation that you would like to see in your, uh, in your institution. Absolutely. And as a result, tenure is almost not even necessary because people aren't producing dissident or controversial research that might require tenure to protect it. Is it, if I'm interpreting I, I, it correctly? That, yeah, that's a great summary. And I think that's exactly right. And, you know, so I, I think it's very important that you give your faculty a sense of security, that they have a home, that they feel secure, that their their jobs are um, valued and that, that, that they can be at a place for a very long time. Uh, so I think that's important. So that that relationship that they build with the institution, which has come through the, you know, through the tenure process, I think is important, but the configuration of, of um, let's say the hiring and promotion process right now has kind of led us to where we are. Isn't there something to be said though, just playing with an idea here, some departments built a reputation around a particular approach to their discipline, you know, whether it's history or politics or economics, you think of the Chicago school or what they're doing over at George Mason, you know, and People gravitate to a particular department because there is a faculty member who looks at things a particular sort of way and they may agree or disagree or they just like that approach and they want to study under that person. So is there a problem then with having departments like that or is it okay so long as there are other departments across the country that that challenge the theses being presented in those departments? I think it's great to have clusters of people who are kind of all working on similar issues in the same direction who might share a kind of ethos, share ideas. I think that's, that's just fine. Um, it's, you know, but those clusters, there, there should be a whole, you know, galaxy of, of, of opportunities for people, with different ideas to find places where they can um, do their work. Um, and I think what we found, we find now at institutions is if you were, if you're an outlier, um, you're, you know, you're, you're you know, somebody who believes in like Austrian uh, economics or something, you know, there aren't many homes left. I mean, you're sort of getting squeezed out and, and the opportunity for heterogeneous uh, intellectual pursuit is, is kind of shriveling up, to be honest. You mentioned at the top, you know, there are many challenges that go with starting your own university. I imagine accreditation is one of them. You know, when I think of new universities, 
the only one that comes to mind is Minerva University, which I think is based in San Francisco. Uh, it took them like what nine years to get accredited. So, what's your what's your approach to that? You know, I, and you need accreditation, right, in order to get yeah you know, for students to get loans and Pell grants and that sort of thing. So, so you do need it for those purposes. If you're going to access federal funding, you need accreditation. Um, we are going to seek accreditation through traditional routes. We are not planning on seeking federal funding. So that's not why we're seeking accreditation. Um, I think the purpose, uh, the reason we're going to seek accreditation um, is to give, you know, you're a new institution. You need to give students and faculty confidence <laughs> that, that there's oversight, right? Accreditation is really an oversight process to make, you know, quality control. And so an accreditor um, provides that function. And I think that's very important. Uh, sometimes. Also, I, 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 I say that because we all accredit almost all accreditors require that their institutions that they accredit promise free speech and academic freedom. We have written to accreditors hundreds of times, maybe saying, "Look what's going on at this school. Look at the what you require by accreditation. You know, do you want to get involved here and maybe investigate what's happening?" It's never they've never actually gotten involved. The only time they've ever gotten involved was this past week with the situation at Florida, and I don't know if that's because the politics were right for it or they had a, the right sort of connection, but I find their enforcement of their accreditation standards to be wanting, to say the least. I, I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, the accreditors don't generally intervene directly in real time in institutions. I mean, you go through an accreditation process and you have sort of periodic review. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think they, they exercise a kind of, um, you know, a, a kind of quiet influence over institutions. You know that, that you know what their standards are and you know that you're going to be reviewed. And I think that has a kind of uh, that influence pervades an institution, but never perfectly. Yeah. Uh, just another note on accreditation, because it'll just get me going. Uh, <laughs> we had at Yale, there's a controversy involving a faculty member who allegedly violated the Goldwater rule for psychology. And she filed a lawsuit and she appealed to Yale's glowing academic freedom promises, the right to think the unthinkable, mention the unmentionable, challenge the unchallengeable. But in court, Yale's lawyers said, that's not school policy. So mm -hmm. you can't appeal to that one. Uh, it's the Woodward Report. It's They have it all over their website. They put it in their alumni documents everywhere. But when they're act, when faculty members actually seek to cash in on that promissory note, uh, it's, it's not actually delivered. And I bring this up because when Yale certifies that it provides academic freedom promises to its accreditor, what they cite is the Woodward report, the right to think the unthinkable, challenge the unchallengeable, not mention the unmentionable. But, you know, will the accreditor just look at that and say, check? Or will they actually care that it's, you know, they might say one thing out of one side of their mouth and another thing out of the other side of their mouth? As you can see, I have an axe to grind with accreditors. You certainly do. And I have dealt with accreditation too. And it also depends on who's, I mean, accreditation is carried out by an accredit a team that visits you and sort of reviews things. It depends on who's on the team sometimes too, how, yeah. how much they pay attention to certain things. But, um, you know, do I think the accreditation system needs to be reformed? Absolutely. Um, but I can't reform accreditation and build a new university at the same time. Why not? Come so, on. <laughs> uh, you know, so maybe down the road, we'll see what we can do. I will say that, you know, we have started working with an accreditor, a major one, and they're very, uh, attentive and and uh, warm to the kind of institution that we're 
planning on. So I'm very hopeful that that we'll find that we've found a good partner in that. Yeah. Well, what are the next steps then? I imagine you have some money to raise. You know, how much money are you looking to raise? And you know, how can how can listeners support your efforts? Yeah. So the the next steps. I mean, you know, one way to build a new university would be to go out there and and find yourself a billion dollars and start there. And so, um, you know, if somebody gives me a billion dollars, that'd be awesome. Thank you. And we'll start there. But but you know, that's not how we're starting. You know, we're starting, we're going to be building the university in a kind of phased fashion. We're starting, you know, uh, with, as I said, a kind of small faculty, small programs, and then we're going to add programs over time as the resources come in to make that possible. Um, so we're, you know, our hope is that, you know, within three to four years, uh, we will have raised enough money to launch the undergraduate program. And we're pretty confident that we could do that, you know, with a few hundred million dollars. Um, we have a, a, you know, we're going to be, uh, we're going to have a, we're not going to have a, a bloated administration. As you pointed out earlier, one of the great things of starting early is you don't start with all this, you know, this, this kind of bloat. We're in a very lean administration. We're going to focus our resources almost exclusively on the classroom and on instruction. Um, you know, we're not going to have sports teams. We're not going to have, the, you know, the proverbial climbing wall and all that stuff, sushi bars. So we're going to have a real kind of low cost delivery model where, you know, rather than spending as many schools do 15 or 20% of the tuition that's collected on the classroom, we're going to be, we're going to aim for 75 or 80%. So having a lower cost model means we have less need for um, uh, a tremendous amount of seed money to start. So a few hundred million dollars will get us going just fine. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, little tiny St. John's College with, you know, uh, under a thousand students um, is just about to successfully complete a $300 million campaign in a few years. So it's not, I think it's not um, unimaginable that we'll have those resources in time. Are students going to live on campus or do you anticipate dormitories? Uh, we're going to have, we will have some residence halls, um, students will also be able to live off campus. Um, you know, I think there's something to be said, especially for, um, undergraduates about living in a, in a learning community together and building a culture together. There's also something to be said for young people, um, to be adults in the world and living independently. So, you know, I think you want to start off with, uh, residence halls and have students there, but then let them live off campus as they move forward. Where can people go to learn more? Do you have a website that people can access? Absolutely. Uh, it is you as in the letter U Austin.org. Well, great. Pano, this has been a fascinating conversation and I hope to be able to check in with you in a year two, three years when the resident, uh, when the undergraduate college is up and running and see how all these ideas that we discussed here just a few days after the launch of your university, how they've all hopefully come to fruition and, and you know, what the challenges have been. Uh, You've got your work cut out for you ahead. So I, I commend you and I wish you all the luck in the world. Well, thank you so much. And I have to say, it's just, it's thrilling to be at this moment in time um, and to be directly involved with founding university thing that's buoyed us up more than anything else is the collection of people who have um, sort of gathered around to help us with this. You know, from the very beginning, 
You know, we've had people such as Neil Ferguson and Barry Weiss and Arthur Brooks and Heather Hying, uh, college presidents like Robert Zimmer from Chicago and Gordon Gee from West Virginia. Uh, you know, we've had uh, public intellectuals like a playwright, David Mamet, or mm-hmm. like Jonathan Haidt, Jonathan Rauch, Glenn Lowry, all joining our, uh, our board and advisory board. You're just ticking off past podcasts, guys. I mean, if you kept going, I'm sure. (laughs) These are are your people. I know that. And the the reason that they're part of our universe is we all believe the same thing. We all believe so deeply in the need for for true and frank discussion about the most important things as, as us human beings, as flawed and and often lost as we are, try to find something called truth. And, you know, and that's what our institution's about. Well, I, I have to admit I'm jealous. You know, I, It's been a goal of mine for my entire life to build something from the ground up, you know, an institution. So I hope to one day be able to do something like that. But in the meantime, you know, this is right up our alley here on So To Speak and right up our alley here at FIRE. So any help that we can provide as you get going. But once you get going we're the watchdog. So we're going to hold you accountable and, uh, hopefully not, not too much because you're doing everything we love, but well, the work you do is so critical and inspirational. It's, as I said, it's, it's, it, it, part of the thing, part of what inspired us to do this is the work that you do at fire and other organizations like heterodox Academy and that, um, trying to keep higher education, higher education accountable. And so we're all on the same team. All right. With that, I'll let you go. Pano, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Nico. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. That was Pano Canelos, and he is the founder of the recently announced University of Austin. This podcast is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So To Speak by visiting us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or liking us on Facebook at So To Speak Podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. And as I said at the top of the show, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. It's the number one thing you can do to help us get more listeners. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. Mm-hmm.